Beautiful. Good morning. It's good to see you. We're going to be in Acts chapter 4, verse 32 through chapter 5, verse 11. Well, I was thinking as we were singing this morning how important it is that we uh, rejoice in the privilege and what a, what a wonderful thing to be able to gather together like this. It, it energizes me each and every Sunday. But ultimately, the goal of uh, discipling a person is that we would each one be utterly dependent upon the Lord, dependent in our own way upon Him. And uh, before we read the scripture, I, I had prepared to say something about the preparation that my dad gave me, because my dad, of course, as I think every parent, wants to train up his son or daughter to be independent of mom and dad. And that's a good thing. That's that is what it's all about. Your goal, parents, is to allow your children to leave the house. And my dad did that. Uh, my dad died December 5th, 1994. He was uh, 63. And my mom died 20 years before my dad at the age of 45. Uh, Mom had a college degree. She was the pianist for Biola Choir and for the Biola Men's Quartet. And that's how my parents met. Uh, My dad attended First Baptist Church of Downey in the Southern California area uh, where his parents, Ann and Peter Venema, attended. Um, And the Biola Choir came, and I don't know the details, but somehow a mom and dad met, and that began a courtship that ended in marriage. But my dad's parents, um, uh, my grandfather from, from the Netherlands, uh, grandma, if I'm not mistaken, was uh, born here in the United States, but her parents, uh, she was a de young and Grandpa was obviously a Venema, but they were Dutch without pedigree. When I came to Visalia, I didn't realize that I was, was, was coming to a bastion of Dutch people. And uh, a, lot of, a lot of times, you know, would tell us about yourself. Well, I, I, you know, I've got nothing to really tell about my, my Dutch upbringing except genes. Uh, we have Dutch genes. Uh, but Grandma cleaned houses. She did housework for other people. And Grandpa worked odd jobs. Um, he, he worked on dairies. He didn't own a dairy. He worked for da- other dairymen. And he also did house painting. Uh, I know that he, he worked the counter at a parts store. So, upper-lower class, lower-middle-class people that worked hard. My dad and my mom married 
uh, dad was 20 and mom was 23. He was, uh, he was armed just with a high school diploma. And so dad worked as a Kirby vacuum cleaner salesman and a locksmith, which I remember as a, as a young, young boy. Uh, he later worked at Benson and Zimmerman, an auto parts uh, place where they also did car repair. Uh, he started low and uh, graduated to the brake department. Sadly, brakes were composed of asbestos. Uh, Dad uh, eventually got into compressors, worked for Ingersoll Rand, uh, ended up working for King Baring for many, many years. When Dad was hospitalized on November 3rd, he told me that he had lung cancer. And he was in the hospital, but he said he was going home. He was resisting any possible treatment. That was hard news. But he said, I'm going to go home to die. And since I was working on my, writing my dissertation at that time, I had the choice to devote time to Dad. And I did each and every day. But not five weeks later, as I said on December 5th, Dad was dead. I was with him every day. And those short weeks were the best days of my life with Dad. Uh, for the first time in my life, I was allowed to help him. Comb his hair, brush his mustache, do little things for him. And it was a time I really cherished because it was a, a time of sharing mutual affection, which was something that didn't happen. But what I wanted to emphasize with a little bit of background was that Dad tirelessly prepared me for living in the real world, and he was relentless. I, I, want, to, I want to let you know that so much of what, what my dad taught me, I, 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 I cherish. Um, he insisted, for example, that I look people in the eye and shake their hand firmly. He insisted that I show respect, that I be courteous and kind to everybody. And back in the 50s, that meant everybody. Son, he said, you've got to earn your own way in this world. Remember, a job worth doing is a job worth doing well. Maybe you heard that kind of thing from your mom or dad. When he called me John, it, it was always son, but he called me John when I was in trouble. So, John, don't just stand there. Give me a hand. And then he would say, don't wait to be asked. And always do more than you're asked to do. That's all good advice, and I've lived by it. But most of his advice had to do with earning my way in this world and the value of a dollar. I don't know if there was any connection with our pedigree. Son, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Nothing in life is free. Son, money doesn't grow on trees. And don't expect something for nothing. Son, you only own what you can earn. Son, if you want respect, 
You've got to earn it. Son, take care of it. And you'll keep the cost of replacing it. Son, don't expect a helping hand. Earn your keep. In our own household, it was always earn your keep. Like, you could get kicked out of here if you don't... <laughs> really? Oh, I could... We could fill up an hour with stories. But Dad wrote his handbook for survival and success on the tablet of my heart. He indoctrinated me. He taught me how I should see the world and how I should live in it to succeed. And he was right. I think he understood the world just the way it really is. The world works that way. Nothing's free. Listen, nothing is free. There's always someone picking up the tab. There's a cost to everything. To own it, you have to earn it. And this rolled over into our relationship. For example, uh, Dad, what's that word mean? Go get the dictionary. Look it up. Well, Dad, I don't know how to spell it. Sound it out. Dad never told me how to look up a word. We had an encyclopedia. Look it up. Figure it out. Find your own way. You can do this. And it carried over into our relationship. Earned reward. Earned respect. Earned approval. Earned acceptance. Earned love. When I received Jesus Christ and began to live by faith and follow God's handbook of gospel and grace, I experienced a tug of war between God, God's handbook and my dad's handbook. And it continues to this day. It's really fainted, but I don't want you to ever think that there isn't always a struggle between handbooks. I don't know who authored your handbook, and it may not have been one author. It may be still in the process of being written, but there's a struggle always between what others are telling you about the world and how you should live in it and succeed and the way God's handbook is revealing to you how we are to live in the light of His grace and the revelation of His Son, Jesus Christ, raised from the dead. There is a battle between handbooks. Paul talks about it when he talks about the battle between the flesh and the Spirit. It's a battle between handbooks. But let me illustrate an example because... Uh, when I became devoted to Jesus Christ, I also became more aware of my failings and shortcomings. And pretty soon, just what people saw and the changes there were not sufficient <laughs> to what the Spirit was convicting me of and the kinds of things that were being revealed to me, the subtleties of motives and things like that that I became very aware of in, in, inside that nobody saw. And I can remember just sometimes being burdened with such guilt. Now, 
I learned early on, 1 John 1.9, it's a verse everyone should commit to memory. If we confess, if we admit our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But yet I still felt guilty. I mean, I could claim that verse and have a Bible study that night, but I would feel so guilty that I wouldn't go to the Bible study. I wouldn't fellowship with other believers. That kind of stuff got inside of me, and it affected my walk with Christ. And God couldn't even get through and say, hey, John, I could use you right now. I mean, that's why I forgave your sin, is so you could let that go and let me use you in wonderful ways because of the grace of salvation. But I couldn't get it into my soul because when my dad punished me, when he would say, go to your room and wait for me and spank me, he would say, it's over. But it wasn't over. Dad would continue to fume and bear a grudge. It was written all over his disposition and attitude. He was disappointed in me. And that disappointment was a burden on my shoulders that I couldn't get off. And so I saw God through the handbook of my father. And I'll bet you do the same thing in your own ways. It took a while for me to really let the truth, the words of God's Word, to really just believe it and not try to earn it. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 was such a beautiful truth to me. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This, that grace which has saved you and which you accept like a gift. He says, it is a gift. God holds it out and faith takes it. God reveals it and faith accepts it. It's a gift. It's not the result of earning it, and yet I kept trying to earn it. And God kept saying, you can't earn what I'm trying to give you, John. And in effect, it finally dawned on me, somebody else earned it. And God was saying, my beloved son, Jesus Christ, he earned it. It wasn't ever just free. He paid the price. He did what you, John, could never do. He earned it. And he who earned it gives it freely to you because you could never pay the price. You could never earn it. And that grace began to flood my soul and change my life. Past experience is so powerful. It can cloud, it can confuse, and it can contradict the gospel. You can define the words in your head, but sometimes it's got to kick down the doors of your past to get through to us. 
to say, it really means this for me too. And let it make a difference in the way you look at the world and start to conduct your life. But the grooves of your life are hard to get your car out of. You're trying to steer out of them, but man, they hold you in there because years and years and years of important people and influential friends have helped drive those grooves into your heart. And God, just through his Holy Spirit, keeps saying, come on, keep steering away from this stuff and get on track with me. And that's what was happening to me. But you know what? Here's a powerful thing. We learn best by example. We learn best by example. Wouldn't it be something if someone like me, coming out of the world, the long hair, the earring, the beard, but more important, not burdened with that funky social stuff, but what was going on in my heart. So this precious thing, so open and excited about God, come into a church where he sees people living by grace. But what happens is, is what was happening with me. I was reading one handbook, but continuing to interpret it and live by another handbook. And you often go into the church and you find a lot of people singing about grace, talking about grace. They got pictures of grace, verses on the word. They've memorized grace, but they don't live by grace. And the example is just more of a perpetuation of what I was already experiencing in my life. Here in Acts chapter 4, we see a predominance of the grace of God flourishing among his people. And it's a powerful thing. Let's read verse 32. Because we see here that where there's faith, there's great grace. All the believers were one in heart. This is the New International Version. The New American Standard Bible picks up the thought. It is the idea that they translate the congregation of those who believed. or the fellowship of those who believe. The the gathering of those who believed. Note, even though it's the word believed, it's talking about faith. Faith is the essential characteristic of Jesus' people. It is the thing that pulls them together. It's the thing that makes a congregation a fellowship. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. Now this is striking, because the language of one mind, one heart, I mean that's fellowship. And it's It's created by faith in Jesus Christ. They're not just believing in anything. If you believe in everything, you believe in nothing. 
They believed in Jesus Christ. It brought them together, and they had fellowship. One mind, one heart. They shared things or held things in common. And what's striking to all who read this and all of the commentators is that this is the language that was used in the Greco-Roman world. It was used by Aristotle to describe ideal friendship. Very same words, one mind, held, in, held things in common, or shared in common. Aristotle defined ideal or true friendship as a oneness of heart and mind in which friends reciprocated evenly. In other words, they had a balanced social status. People from the same class, if you will, but freely sharing, giving and receiving. And in a relationship, there is that sense in which you hold things in common, but it's not one-sided. You equally share with one another. That's a beautiful thing. If you could do that, if I could do that, it would be... The, the, the spark for deeper friendship. But the powerful thing here is that there is this same reality, this oneness of mind and heart, and this sharing, but it's not between, between social equals. These are not best friends. This is more a picture of family. Those who have give to those who don't. There's no need between them. There isn't reciprocation. They give without any thought of return. This is a powerful thing we're witnessing here. And it goes on to say in chapter 4, verse 33, with great power the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. I was so grateful that Brian highlighted this. It, it's not like, hey, I said I loved you once. Shelley and I, are, somebody reminded me that it's our 38th wedding anniversary this month. I try to tell her every day. It's a living relationship. This emphasis on the resurrection from the apostles is keeping before the people the fact that Jesus isn't just an artifact of history, he's alive. He's in their midst. He's moving through His Holy Spirit. This resurrection has a present power where people accept it and begin to live in the strength of Jesus Christ because He's risen and alive, not dead in a historical fact. And His Spirit is moving in their lives. And great grace is upon them all. There it is, that word, grace. Through faith, in acceptance of the reality of the living Lord. And then it says, verse 35, uh, 34, excuse me, there was no needy persons among them, for from time to time some who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to everyone anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, 
which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied to men, but to God. And when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. Great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came home from shopping, not knowing what had happened. I, sorry. <laughs> Have you never been to the Jerusalem Mall? <laughs> Peter asked her, tell me, is this price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said. That is the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men carried in, came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. People grow in God's grace by faith. Jesus' people grow in God's grace by faith. They stop growing. They cease to grow. They wither up and die when grace is thwarted in their life by greed and deceit. And that's the battleground. To grow in grace and not let the deceit that says, hey, fake it. Fake it. And live the way you've always lived. That is when we start to wither and die. If someone can bring up that slide, I'll let you see what the answers are to those so that we can just, uh, let me push on, but there we go. By forwarding God's grace, here the people, all the people uh, that are so moved are selling property and houses as people have need, and they bring it and they lay it at the, people, at the, at the feet of the apostles. And... And then Barnabas is just like them. He's brought into focus. It's as though the director of this narrative movie, he says, let's look at one of these people who are doing this. Let's look at a guy. And he stands out because the apostles themselves see what God is doing in his heart. They call this man Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. 
You remember when we, uh, we talked about the Holy Spirit and we looked at John, the Gospel of John chapters 14, 15, and 16, and how the Holy Spirit in those chapters is called the paraclete. And the words were used to describe this word parakletos, which is the Greek word translated or, or you know, in, in kind of phonetics, sounded out, paraclete, parakletos. And, and it can mean a counselor, an advisor, an, a helper, an encourager. Are you getting the point? Barnabas is not called parakletos, he's Paul, called parakleseos, which is what a parakletos does. He's what, so to speak, the Holy Spirit is doing. He's an encourager, he's an exhorter, he's a helper, he's an advisor. He's a giver. He's generous, just like these other people when grace gets a hold of them. They quit trying to earn it and make everyone else in their life earn it. They earned it, but they give it. And Barnabas stands out, and he pays it forward. He's forwarding the grace of God that he has experienced in his own life. That's the motivation. That's got to be the motivation. If we go back and read the sermons of Acts, it's free. God has given this. He whom you killed, God has raised, and now He calls you in His mercy to receive this salvation. Even though you have blood on your hands, that's free. That's grace. That's not holding it against you. Barnabas, in that same spirit, captured by that grace in his life, like all the others, are taking care of one another. They aren't saying, hey, you know, I'm concerned about how you're going to grow up, so I'm going to make you pay for something that you can't afford to pay for. I'm going to help you out, brother. It's an extension of the salvation I've experienced in my life. And he brings the proceeds and lays them at the feet of the apostles. He forwards the grace of God in his life, and he becomes a champion, an emblem, an example of faith. Barnabas is the unsung hero of Acts. We miss the point if we think that Barnabas is somehow fully developed as a believer. He's not. He's a guy doing what everyone else is doing. But they call him son of encouragement because they obviously see, wow, this guy is really alive, and he's doing these kinds of things, and it expresses that encouragement, that beauty of the gospel. They call him son of encouragement. And we follow Barnabas, and he pops up again in chapter 9, and he pops up again in chapter 11. He pops up again in chapter 13, and again in chapter 15. Now, you can remember that, can't you? 9, 11, 13, 15. Read about Barnabas. But if we were to take all the descriptions and construct a profile, we would see that the Spirit of Jesus is alive in this man. Why is it alive? Why does he grow? Why does he become more than just one in the crowd? 
He becomes more than just one in the crowd because he is alive through faith to the grace of God in his life. And he devotes himself increasingly to Jesus Christ. He believes that Jesus can do something through him. He's a sparkling picture of a spirit-led life. But we miss the point if we think he starts like he ended. He grows in grace by faith. Falsehood stops Ananias and Sapphira in their tracks. Faking grace stops Ananias and Sapphira in their tracks. But living out grace, forwarding grace, by faith in the resurrected one, grows grace in your life and you become more and more like Jesus. And the very things that typify his life typify the life of Barnabas. In chapter 9, I'm going to do this real quick, but he becomes an advocate for Saul, who later is called Paul. You know who Saul was? He persecuted the church. We're going to learn more about him. But he meets Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, on the way to persecuting people like you and me. He is authorized to come into our lives and take control and punish and persecute and torture because people like us say Jesus first. But then Jesus himself gets a hold of Paul. And so he goes to Jerusalem in Judea to the very Jesus people we're reading about right here, and he says, it's a whole new ball game. Jesus has changed my life. And they said, sorry. And they back away. They think he's posing. They think he's faking this Christianity so that he can get the drop on him. So he can get the inside scoop and persecute more. Who steps in to help Saul? Barnabas. Barnabas takes him to the apostles. Barnabas is the relational bridge. Barnabas is the one who believes in miracles at this point and that God can do a miraculous work even in a man like Saul, which I don't even think we can fathom how frightening it must have been to have him knocking at your door. In chapter 11, in this city of Antioch, another city that Paul had persecuted, in this city, there's an outbreak of Jesus people. I mean, people are coming to Christ right and left. And the apostles in Jerusalem didn't have anything to do with it. The gospel is just starting to spread. And people from Cyprus and other areas come to Antioch. They start telling, hey, Jesus is for real. People believe it. They start living it out. There's this outbreak of Jesus people. It gets back to Jerusalem, and the apostles say, let's send someone to see if this thing is on the right track, if it's authentic, if it's real. Who do they send? Barnabas. Barnabas. Barnabas goes, and here's how he's described in 11, 23, and 24. When he witnessed the grace of God, he could see the grace of God because he experienced the grace of God. When you realize grace in your life, it makes you a more generous, grateful person. You start to see grace everywhere. 
He, saw, he got there, he saw the grace of God. He rejoiced and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and many people were brought to the Lord. Barnabas goes then from Antioch to Tarsus. He finds Saul. He says, Saul, you've got to be a part of this. He starts mentoring Saul. He sees something powerful in Saul. He sees something that nobody else sees. He sees stuff because of grace in his life. He sees the beauty of God's work. He's not drawn to the negative or the critical. He's not protective. Why should he protect himself? He goes to Paul. He brings Paul to Antioch and gets Paul involved in this. Well, who is Paul? Paul's the one who goes on to write 13 of the New Testament letters. He's called the apostle to the Gentiles. But Paul wouldn't even be on the radar, at least humanly speaking. I'm sure God would have used someone else. But he used Barnabas. And why was Barnabas equipped? It wasn't because he had degrees or he came outfitted with a title. It was because he was open to what God's doing in his life. And you know what? I'm talking to you about this right now because that's how I got started. I wasn't born with a PhD or a degree. When I walked into that church, I looked like the least likely to succeed. And someone loved me. Someone reached out to me. Someone showed me encouragement and exhortation. Someone had their eye on God and said, God can do a work in this man. And Paul is the man in the New Testament because Barnabas said that very same thing. In chapter 13, on the very first missionary journey, Barnabas is the top dog. Paul is the lap dog. Barnabas is the A-alpha dog. From Antioch, they send Barnabas and Saul in that order. In fact, when they got to Lystra, they go into all these Gentile territories. When they got to Lystra, the people saw what they were doing, Barnabas and Paul. And they thought that they were the chief gods of the pantheon. They called Barnabas Zeus. They called Paul Hermes, the spokesman. But they both worked miracles. I don't think God started working miracles with Barnabas right off the bat. As he grew in his devotion and his commitment and his understanding, God started to do greater and greater things through him. Barnabas is described as an apostolic-like man at the end. Barnabas is one of the chief guys in chapter 15 that bring the concerns of what God is doing among people like you and me, the Gentiles, into the leaders of Jerusalem. You see, they wanted everybody to become Jews, basically. And why not? I mean, how else are you going to figure this whole thing out? But God was doing a work among the Gentiles apart from all the specificities of Judaism within which Christianity, Jesus was born, and this whole thing started. Barnabas was right there in that leadership, building bridges between churches. And later in chapter 15, 
Barnabas rehabilitates John Mark. He blew it. And Paul said, you know, where I'm going, I don't think you're cut out for it. I don't want to take you with us. I can understand that. But Barnabas, 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 Barnabas. Barnabas says, John Mark, you come with me. We're going to go into another missionary field. Maybe one that's more suited to where you're at. A chance to rehab for Christ and prove yourself. And Paul and Barnabas separated company. What an example of grace this Barnabas is. But Ananias and Sapphira, they faked that grace. And they became a casualty of the falsehood and deception they allowed into their lives. They're Christians. It's so clear here. They're included in the congregation of those who believed. Peter says, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's... You can't... (laughs) Who's Holy Spirit? You lied to the Holy Spirit because you are being prompted. You're being encouraged. You're being led by that Spirit. In fact, if they're not believers, then why does fear seize the rest of the congregation? It's mentioned twice. They're they're seized with fear when they see this. Why? If it's just something that could happen to people who aren't believers. They're personally so clearly responsible for this. But why is it said by Peter that Satan filled your heart if such falsehood was not in contrast to a different expectation? And that expectation would be that Jesus or His Spirit is directing your lives. And finally, the New Testament shows that God does discipline believers as He did here. But not, I mean, this was clearly, I don't know how long it took the apostles and the people to figure out that God was making a point and not setting a pattern. Because if He was setting a pattern, every church would need a morgue and a caretaker on staff. And we'd probably even be having to replace staff. Because you see, deceit is a part. It's a constant temptation. I'm going to wrap this up. Boy, there's some good stuff in here. They basically faked it. They held it back. It's clear. I won't go to, on to make a greater case, but I want to draw your attention to Revelation chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. To the church in Sardis, write, These are the words of Him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. That's Jesus. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. That could be said to each and every one of us. I know it's a heavy thing. Let me put it in terms of myself. Very hard for me to read my reputation. But I could could coast on my reputation. I mean, a reputation earned by genuine faith 
at times isn't always fueled by faith. We can coast. We can trick it. We can pose. We can fake it. That's why living by faith is not something you do on holidays or high Christian holidays. It's something you, you work at doing each and every day. You let the truth of the resurrection into your life. And it's not just for special occasions. It's for all the down and dirty stuff that is a part of our lives each and every day. It's for husbands who don't deserve it. It's for wives who don't deserve it. It's for kids who haven't earned it. It's for one another in the faith. It even affects our viewpoint as a viewpoint of faith. Not necessarily read out of the handbook of our experience or our history in this world or our achievements in this world. It's by faith. It's by trusting Jesus Christ. It's by letting that grace fill our hearts. Will you stand with me? I don't want to leave you in any way discouraged. I'm just saying we are all in a process of growing. We're all growing. But take those steps today. Take those steps today that God is prompting you to do. And that way, when you lay it at the apostles' feet, like the Jesus people did, like Barnabas did, and like Ananias and Sapphira did, you lay it with a pure heart. A heart led by trust and belief in Jesus. And the grace, it will show up and characterize what you do and who you are. May we all be sons of encouragement daughters of encouragement, kids of encouragement in Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Yeah, I'm going to pray, and if you'd like to come forward after I say amen, we invite you to come. I'll be up here at the front with the pastors and elders or wives. We invite you to come as the Lord leads you to pray for yourself or for someone else. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the person of grace, Jesus Christ which shows us the heart that you have full of grace and truth. We love you, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said, God bless you. This has been a production of Grace Community Church of Visalia. For more information, go to our website at www.gccvisalia.org or for more sermons, go to gccvisalia.org slash podcast.